Okay, I had trouble getting past the roses myself. Uh, I tell you what, I can get no exercise walking that rose walk because I keep stopping and there's a new one that has, I have to have a picture of it. They're just, there's this, well, but I can show you which one does. There's a, there's a certain bush that has a very, it's pink and it's a beautiful smell. Well, I came upon this lady that was standing there with a camera, and she was standing way back. looked like she was taking a picture of this little bud, and I couldn't resist. And I said, I bet you can't take just one. And she ignored me. So I just stood there. She was concentrating. And when she took her picture, she said, I've taken thousands. <laughs> so she must live around here. I don't know. But, oh, they're just gorgeous, aren't they? So when I do my lake walk, I have to go the other direction. I go that way and back around, and then I finish with the rose walk, because then I need to slow down anyway, right? Get my heart back down to a normal rate. <laughs> I have a question about, uh, have you heard anything about uh, your seminar um, downloads? No, I know nothing about our seminar they're downloads. Not, they're not there. Maybe they're too controversial. I don't know. Okay, did you hear that? The downloads will be available after camp meeting and they'll send them to your home. All right. Well, it's good to see all of you here today. You're, you're weathering the storm. I mean, this is not a very easy issue to be talking about, uh, especially in this political climate. And that political climate bleeds over into the church. And, uh, but, you know, folks, we've got to talk about it. Uh, if we don't, while we're not talking about it, the world is, and our young people are growing up totally confused. Uh, I was talking to a dean at one of our universities and telling him about our ministry and hoping to get on campus, you know, to do some presentations because it'd be nice if we could get to the young people. It's very difficult, but anyway. Um, later I found out one of the professors at that university had done a survey on campus and they said 90% of the students are okay with gay marriage, so we don't think we need to talk about it. And I said, wait a minute. That's because all of the information they're getting is from the world. And who is deciding the curriculum? I mean, if they were taught the biblical perspective, then maybe 90% would be opposed to gay marriage. Amen. Um, so anyway, we have a difficult time getting on campus. I'm going to talk about campus. Yeah, well, I'm going to talk about campus today. Is that okay? Um, but first, we really need to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your sure word of prophecy. It is such a solid rock. We do not need to vacillate on moral issues. If we really just listen to your counsel, everything becomes clear. Everything that we need for salvation is clear in your word. And we just pray that you will bless us today as we spend this time together. May your thoughts, your words again be expressed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Um, I had trouble deciding what to talk about today. 
I've got, well, I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about 10 different folders here. Um, but I picked one, and, and maybe I can just re, when the questions come, they'll be coming out of some of these others, I'm sure. But I picked a subject that I think we really need to address as a Seventh-day Adventist, as a Christian church. And it ha does have to do with our institutions. Um, because, you know, we're here at camp meeting, and, you know, coming out ministries has spoken at a number of camp meetings, and, uh, you know, a week after we are here, we'll be at Indiana camp meeting. Um, and we've done Georgia Cumberland camp meetings, and we've done a Soquel camp meeting in California, and we've done camp meetings up in Canada, and we, we are invited to speak at ministers' workers' meetings, and I really appreciate that because when you can address 166 pastors at one time, how many churches is that? 300 at least, right? <laughs> and, I, and I really like that. We've done a lot of presentations with them and union programs, division, and, and even with the general conference, I was one of, those in, one of those invited by the general conference to go to Cape Town, South Africa a couple of years ago when they had this symposium on the gay issue within our denomination, and it was for general conference and division level. And then each division was uh, allowed to bring so many delegates. And so I just want you to know that Coming Out Ministries is, um, we are a friend of the General Conference. We are a friend of the church. We are in the church. We are Seventh-day Adventists. And maybe you heard from my testimony already. It was the Seventh-day Adventist message that gave me what I needed. And I didn't need it watered down. I didn't need to be patted on the head and say, you're okay just the way you are. And we hear people say all the time, oh, the Lord loves me just the way I am. That's wrong. That's false doctrine. There's a key word in there. The Lord loves us where we are, but he doesn't love us the way we are. He loves us. But if he loved us the way we are, then why would he want to change us? But I, I think people use that term quite frequently, and they're not thinking it through carefully. Um, I, I give them the benefit of the doubt, and I, I say, well, I know what you mean. However, words do matter, because a lot of people, a lot of gay people say, the Lord loves me this way, he made me this way, and it's okay with him, and, and uh, so on. So knowing that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the answer for the gay issue, um, I feel so burdened that we get it right that we tap into what we have. Um, there are many ministries out there dealing with the gay issue that are not Adventist. And the Lord is blessing them because they're, they're out there in front. They're risking all kinds of opposition and persecution. They're living up to what they know. But they don't have what we have. We have the answer. Why? Because... Uh, this thing, I need to, I need to just turn it off. I have it on silent, but it's vibrating and it's distracting me. <laughs> uh, now, where was I? <laughs> yeah, we have the answer. And here's why, friends, because we are a denomination that is not afraid to define sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. And if you do not accept that as a definition of sin, how are you going to teach people to overcome sin? 
And I think that's why the Lord has blessed us with so much light and so much truth because we're willing to acknowledge his authority in Ten Commandments, not just nine or eight or whatever. But it pains me when I see within our own denomination, um, you know, ministers and schools and so forth, basically uh, following the path of the world in regards to this issue. It's like, wait a minute, go back to the books, you know, get in, involved in our message and apply it. Because in my case, I simply applied the Bible remedy for sin to the gay issue and I turned and walked away. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It's not simple. The concept is simple. But it's a real exercise, just like with anyone else that gives their heart to the Lord, when you go through a lifestyle change, it is extremely difficult. Uh, how many pastors do we have here today? Any? Yes, one, two, three, okay. You know when you do evangelistic meetings, there are two subjects that I have found where you start losing people. Uh, what's one of them? The Sabbath, why? It's a lifestyle change. What's another one? Well, really the health message. The health message. Those are the two. I've had people come to me just rejoicing over the state of the dead because now they can let their mother sleep in peace and they're no longer having nightmares about where she is and what she's doing. Uh, but yeah, that too. But my, mainly the health message and the Sabbath because it requires a lifestyle change. And you think about it, what if we discovered all of a sudden that we were wrong and Sunday is the seventh day of the week? How easy would it be for you to switch from Sabbath to Sunday? I mean, it's a lifestyle change that is monumental. Um, and so our message requires lifestyle change and, and anyone coming into the Adventist faith goes through that trauma that we can hardly relate to if we were born and raised as Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, and they come in, usually when they come in from another faith, they're very strong because they have gone through the, what, the trauma of birth, <laughs> the trauma of new birth, whatever. Um, in our schools, this is where we have, we are experiencing a lot of difficulty, and I am of the opinion that it is because, and it's not just an opinion, I have heard it expressed from some of the schools we have accreditation to worry about. We have government funding to deal with. We have tax-exempt status. We have discrimination lawsuits to worry about. And therefore, just leave it alone, be quiet. And so while we are silent, the enemy is not. In one of our schools, there's a girl that drives around on campus with her Volkswagen bug painted like a billboard. You know what it says on it? Fag bug. Fag bug. And she's all over campus promoting homosexuality with a billboard on her car. And that, to me, is a little problematic for a Christian university. Well, I want to talk about safe places today. In Leviticus 25, 18, we read, Wherefore ye shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land in safety. Notice, wherefore ye shall do, ye shall keep, ye shall do, and then ye shall dwell in safety. And we'll look at that a little bit closer. 
as we go along. But a couple of years ago in the autumn of one of our, uh, at one of our institutions, one of our schools, there was a, a week of spiritual emphasis. And in, in my presentations, I don't want to name names or name places specifically because that's not the point. I want to address issues and I don't want to embarrass or, or be judgmental or critical. I want to address issues uh, because I have two kids in college and so I'm a very concerned parent. But this college was having a week of spiritual emphasis and many of you probably have heard all about this already. And the new chaplain of the college was doing this week long series and on one night he did a sermon on Adam and Eve in which well, I didn't hear it, so I'm just assuming it was about marriage and family. The very next night, he preached a sermon on Adam and Steve. And I watched that one. I watched it all the way through, and I was shocked. I was disappointed. Uh, I knew immediately from where he was coming and to where he was going with his message from the get-go I knew where he was, where he was going. From where he was coming is found in the very first sermon ever preached in Genesis 3, 4, verse 4, thou shalt not surely die, right? Thou shalt not surely die. Sin and live. God does not really mean what he says. And I'm not having to conjecture when I say that because he went on and cited many instances in the Bible where God had actually and often, quote, given in to mankind on issues. Can you think of times where God gave in, gave up, um, you know, gave in to man's way and whatever, but he, he cited these. Uh, so he mentions repenting of even creating, creating man in the days of Noah, for one, uh, sparing Nineveh from, Nineveh from destruction. Of course, God didn't give in to man with Nineveh. Nineveh gave in to God. Uh, it, it, that's totally backwards, isn't it? And he stressed God gave in to man. He said he would destroy them, and he didn't. Well, Nineveh repented, but 40 years later, he did destroy them. So he didn't give in. Man gave in to God for one generation and then failed. Okay. Um, then he mentions deviating from his original plan for marriage by allowing divorce. So he said God gave in by allowing divorce. And, uh, of course, we think of polygamy. He didn't mention that, but in, with the case of polygamy, um, that was not God's plan. He never condoned it. And I think of poor Jacob, and I can just see God saying, Jacob, you've got punishment enough. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> you've got four wives. You, you know, all right. That's your punishment, enough. Can you imagine that poor man? He was probably constantly in the middle of a cat fight, uh, you know, putting out fires and, uh, oh man, I do not pity that man whatsoever. But, um, but one thing about polygamy, it was still heterosexual, it was still patriarchy, it was still heterosexual, it was still procreation, uh, it was... Um, uh, following the Edenic plan in that respect, but please don't go from here saying I'm condoning polygamy. I'm not. I have one wife, and I would not condone polygamy. <laughs> one is enough. 
you know, we do great when it's just the two of us. Okay, most of the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then this preacher went on to say, so today he might be okay with Adam and Steve unions as well as Adam and Eve. After all, he's given in to man before. And the point that he was making was that Adam and Eve, the Adam and Eve institution was about relationship, not about sexual intimacy. It was about relationship. So God could be okay with Adam and Steve if they love each other and they have a good relationship. Why wouldn't God be okay with that? Well, for one thing, they can't procreate. That's one reason. And the other thing, the whole image of the Godhead is kind of skewed, isn't it? Because in marriage, isn't the Godhead somehow revealed? We have equality within the Godhead, but you also have submission within the Godhead. You have equality in marriage, but you have submission in marriage. And there's this revelation of some of the characteristics of God in marriage. You don't see it in homosexual relationships. It's terribly skewed. So, yes, from where he was coming in his sermon was, thou shalt not surely die, to where he was going was simply salvation in, <clears throat> in sin rather than salvation from sin. Do you see that? If we think, well, God will give in on this, well, then why wouldn't he give in on that and give in on this and so forth and so on? Um, there have been a number of articles written about that sermon. You can imagine that that sermon caused quite uh, an uproar within Adventist circles, especially in conservative Adventist circles. Um, and so I won't go, I'm not going to critique that sermon. There was one thing that he brought out that I want to talk about today, and this came towards the end of his sermon, and it just shook me to the core because I have kids in school. I have, we don't spend thousands of dollars a month for our children to be in Adventist universities to be indoctrinated by the devil. We, that's not why they are there. And so one of my very favorite and very often quoted texts of scripture is Isaiah 1 verse 18, where God says, come now, let us reason together. I love that passage. It's so, it's an invitation where God is saying, come on, let's sit down and let's talk about it. And he will reason with us and we can reason with him. And if, you know, he wants to be in on the discussion, obviously, and he probably would like to have the last word once in a while, maybe <laughs> all the time. But I like that. So I want to do some reasoning today on this point. Uh, and we will use God's input because what's the point of reasoning if God's not in on the discussion? It's your opinion versus mine. I totally agree that our schools, our colleges, our universities, our churches, our homes should be safe places. And this is the point I want to bring out. At the end of his sermon, he said, you know, this school needs to create a safe place for Adam and Steve. Well, let me ask this. Should our schools be safe places for Adam and Eve before marriage? Well, no, I mean, not to be sexually intimate. Well, don't pay attention to what I say. Listen to what I mean. <laughs> okay. Our schools should not be safe places for boys and girls to act out. 
before marriage. I mean, courtship and all that, that's one thing. But if we're making safe places for Adam and Steve, it's not for courting. Let me tell you, gays don't court. You get the point? They don't court, they act. So if you're creating a safe place for gays, for Adam and Steve on campus, you're creating a safe atmosphere for them to act out, to be open about their, their homosexuality, to be proud of their, social, their homosexuality, to promote it, uh, and so forth. So do you know that all of our, just about all of our universities now have gay-straight alliances on campus? In other words, gay clubs. And there are a lot of straight people that belong to these because they are friends of gays. And I don't mean just friends. I'm friend, a friend of gays, but I'm not a friend of the gay agenda. But these people, they protect the gay issue from any opposing point of view on campus. I mean, that's their purpose. And so while they're doing that, they're promoting the gay agenda as well. So he said, we need to have this school needs to have a safe place for Adam and Steve unions, Adam and Steve relationships. And then he went farther. He said, no, let's make this whole campus a safe place for Adam and Steve. Make, make it an Adam and Steve friendly university or college. And then he made an appeal. And you know, our young people are so impressionable and they are so easily manipulated. And this, this uh, chaplain was so charismatic and so entertaining to listen to. And when he made the appeal, the entire student body stood up to go along with, I mean, that's what you could see. I'm sure there were some who didn't, but what you saw was just in mass. They stood up to answer the call to be gay friendly on that campus. So, I do agree that our institutions, and not just our schools, our churches, our homes, and all of that should be safe places. But then I ask the question, for whom? They should be safe places, but for whom should they be safe places? And the, the title of this article was A Safe Place for Whom? According to the words of Gabriel, himself in Matthew 1.21 when he came to visit Joseph before Jesus was born. He said, you should call his name Jesus. Why? Because, and then he said, because. See, the word Jesus has a meaning. And he said, because, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, if God's people need to be saved from something, is that something not like an enemy? Right? Wouldn't we need to be saved from something harmful from the enemy? And so if we are to be saved from sin, then it only stands to reason that sin is like the enemy, and the originator of sin is the enemy. Uh, one, when one is in bondage to sin, and sin is the enemy, then our Savior wants to provide us with delivery from that enemy of sin and safety from it. So... Uh, the entire plan of salvation is about deliverance from sin, redemption from sin, restoration from sin, transformation from sin into the very image of the deliverer himself, Jesus. So, 
if it is a safe place that we're wanting to establish as a Christian institution, for example, a school, it should be a safe place for our students, right? Not a safe place for sin, not a safe place for the enemy of souls to do his work. We shouldn't create safe places for Satan to do his work and carry out his plan. And that's the way I was looking at it. Unfortunately, it seems that some of our institutions are already or, or they are fast becoming safe places for the enemy because of all of these gay straight alliances on campus. And though we, in Coming Out Ministries, we're able to go so many places and we go all around the world with, with seminars and, and our testimonies and we praise God for those open opportunities, it's almost impossible to get into one of our college campuses because of gay-straight alliances. Almost impossible. I was invited to speak at one uh, several years ago at a joint worship. And... Um, one of the faculty members had come across me at one of the conventions like ASI or maybe General Conference or something and, and invited me to come and, and uh, speak at the campus. And so I accepted the invitation and then I waited and I waited and nothing happened and nothing happened. And so I called because, you know, I'm booking out 12 months out and I need to have things confirmed. And so I called and I was told, well, uh, yeah, the invitation still stands, but it's going through this committee and that committee and so forth. And I said, well, what's the problem? Well, you know, this is a very controversial issue. I said, we're in the great controversy, so what's the problem? <laughs> well, you know, there are two sides to this issue, you know. And I said, I know. Why don't we present God's side for a change? <laughs> And they said, well, you know, it's just, it's very difficult. You just won't believe, you know, what all we have to deal with and so forth. And eventually, um, I did get permission to come, but the faculty was too, well, I even told them, I said, listen, I'm an alumnus from that school. I have a degree in theology with honors from that school. I'm a conference pastor in the Arkansas-Louisiana Conference. What is the risk? Why am I the one that is being so terribly scrutinized when this is running rampant all through the campus? I mean, isn't that kind of backwards, you know? And I can give you any recommendation you want from our conference president, union, you know, I can go all the way up and get recommendations, but still, no, I was considered to be high risk. Isn't that something that the gospel is high risk on one of our campuses? Well, eventually I was able to get on the campus and you know, bless their hearts, it was not the students so much that I talked to the dean that was, organ that was planning the program that night. It was a joint worship um, in the girls' dormitory chapel and with it being a joint worship also it was a voluntary attendance. So they, the students have to attend so many worships a week or whatever and they get credit you know, for those worships. And, so I was told, well, they're going to offer double credit to encourage the students to come, and they would be promoting the program. Well, I drove all the way from our, I can't tell you, I don't want to tell you where it is. They don't know. Okay. They don't know. Okay. I drove a long ways <laughs> to that institution. Uh, and when I got there and I sat down with the dean, I said, so how's it going? Uh, you know, I was all excited about finally getting on campus, and I said, how did the promotion go? He said, uh, well, we, we didn't do any promotion. I said, what? 
what do you mean you didn't do any promotion? He said, well, no, we didn't do any promotion. I said, uh, but you are offering double credit. Like he said, no, we didn't do that either. And I said, why not? He said, well, we thought we'd just let the Holy Spirit take care of it. Oh. You know, I said, I don't think the Holy Spirit works like that. The Holy Spirit works with us, not for us, you know, Amen. in our place. And so the worship was coming on, and, and Mike, I called Mike because he was in the area. I have to be so careful. So, I called Mike because he was in the area that weekend, that day, whatever, and he came, and um, we prepared for this meeting that night. And I was, all I was going to do was share my testimony, which you heard the other day. And then uh, one of the faculty members came, and she said, listen, uh, I asked her, what time does this program start? She said, well, 9 o'clock. And I said, well, what time does it end? She said, 10 o'clock. And I know you may be laughing now, but I think I could do it in an hour. But uh, <laughs> Okay, I can do that. She said, don't go past 10 o'clock. I said, why? What happens? I'm thinking, do I turn into a pumpkin or what? What happens after 10 o'clock? She said, well, you have to, we'll have to offer double credit if you go over time. I just tucked that away. <laughs> And then I was told, don't be, you know, don't take it personally if you see the students texting or doing homework and so forth during the program. And I said, you allow that during worship? Well, you know, uh, they're adults. And I said, again, you allow that in worship? Would you allow that in church? I mean, this is worship. But they assured me, you know, not to take it personally. So... Mike Carducci and I went backstage with the lady who invited me there in the first place, and we had a prayer session, and I mean, we poured it out. We said, Lord, we're going to call on the Holy Spirit to do what the faculty should have done. Please, somehow, will you promote this program and bring the students? Well, when the students came, the chapel was full, Amen. absolutely full. And the dean introducing the program announced this was their largest turnout of the school year so far to that date. Um, they had such a long praise service <laughs> beginning at 9 o'clock. I'm beginning to think my one hour is now 45 minutes, my one hour is now 40 minutes. And I was watching the watch, and I thought they would never stop the praise service. And finally, they introduced me, and I went up to speak. And... The students were so reactive, they just drank in my testimony. You know the most powerful message you can give is your own testimony, and I think maybe you can understand when I gave my testimony the other day. It's, it's so powerful when you share what the Lord can do and what he has done. And the students, there was no texting, there was no homework, and I remember this one young man way back towards the back on the left, um, and he was like this. He was craning his neck. Every time I looked at him, he, it was like he was a statue. He was that way the whole presentation. And those students, uh, they applauded. They said amen. They praised the Lord. They cheered, you know, throughout the presentation. They just were eating it up. And I was so caught up in the interaction, I forgot to <laughs> look at my watch. <laughs> When I finished, it was 10 after 10. And the dean came up. No, he wasn't speaking. I invited him there to be a prayer warrior because it was my speaking engagement. It just did one speak. And so 
the dean got up and announced, well, the speaker went over tonight, so you'll all be getting double credit. And they just cheered, and I was still on the platform. And I just pointed and said, I did that on purpose. And they just loved it. But the point I'm trying to make is our students can handle this message. They need this message, and they lingered afterwards, and they talked, and they bought my books, and they, they talked about their friends and their family and people, other students in the school, and, and they had a burden to deal with this issue in a redemptive way. And so my burden is let the students hear our message. Amen. It's, it's my generation that's so paranoid about it. <laughs> they don't want to talk about it, and that's one reason we had so much trouble growing up because our generation wasn't talking about this issue. No one was talking about it. There were no resources. There was no one to go to. Well, anyway, um, at the, the same time that these safe places are being created for Adam, I mean, for yeah, Adam and Steve relationships, the gospel is being uh, blocked. I mean, people that come in with that uh, with the gospel relating to that issue is being blocked. And there have been times where we get write-ups by student papers that totally dis... Um, uh, pro-gay people writing the newspapers, they totally uh, yeah, misconstrue the whole message and, and then it's not even corrected in the next issue. So uh, we do have those problems on campus, on our campuses. But what we see is the gay issues being more and more tolerated, accepted, embraced, celebrated, and promoted within the boundaries of our schools. Now, 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And so it's with love and compassion that he wants to reach out to his children who are caught up in this bondage. And also, uh, we want to do the same. It, it's from a broken heart uh, you know, the, the gay and the straight sinner alike were in his mind when Jesus gave his life at the, on the cross of Calvary. So my question is, why is God's loving appeal so strongly and fiercely opposed on the campuses of our schools of refuge? I would like to think our schools are schools of refuge. Uh, they're becoming schools of refuge, but for the wrong powers, unfortunately, in some cases. Are they destined to become safe places for open sin and rebellion and defiance, for political correctness, conventional thinking, rather than places of higher learning? And I use that higher learning in reference to God's ways, his standards. Um, I totally agree that our institutions need to be safe places, but for what and for whom? And I made a list. And... You know, just, just sitting down, I just started writing a list. As a parent with two students in college, what am I looking for in one of our institutions? First of all, I think they should be safe places for our children and for our young people where they will not be corrupted by the wiles of the devil, where they can... You, you know, when, when our students go to our universities, they go with a mindset that I think that anything and everything they hear on campus is okay, right? Because it's an Adventist school. So they generally think, and of course, we try to train our children, think for yourselves and be a Berean because not everything you might hear is going to be correct. 
Study it out. Be a Berean. Receive, but then study. But sometimes I think if our young people were to go to a public college where their the standards are not expected to be high, their guard is more up. When they go to our institutions, their guard is down. I mean, mine was. I mean, I hung on every word of my professors. I mean, I never questioned. Of course, I was very innocent and naive, and I never questioned what they taught. I mean, I, you know, back in those days, maybe everything was true. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I know what it's like to be a young person going into one of our institutions. And so uh, I would like for these institutions to be safe for our children to socialize with other Christians to meet godly young people, to maybe even find someone, a life partner at one of these places that is like-minded and converted, um, that um, really follows the Lord. Uh, number two, I think our institutions should be safe places for the expressed will of God as revealed through his word, the Bible. And I say that because it's difficult to do that anymore on some of our campuses. When you, I mean, you can quote right out of the Bible and right out of the spirit of prophecy and they'll call you uh, a conservative fanatic um, or that you're legalistic or you're a perfectionist or whatever. I didn't write this, you know that. I didn't write this. <laughs> but I try to live by it. I mean, this is what gave me what I needed to come out of the gay life. It's precious to me. And I don't try to present my thoughts in my words. I, I try to pattern my thoughts after what I have studied. I had one person come to me at a big event, and he said, Ron, we want to hear what you think about this. You, you just quote the Bible all the time. We want to hear what you think. I said, that's what I think. You know, thy word have I hid in mine heart, right? And so when a question comes up, I find myself regurgitating, if I can use that word, things that I've planted. And I was shocked that this professor at one of our universities wanted me to stop quoting the Bible and just give my opinion. I said, I am giving my opinion. It happens to be the same as God's. You know, and, and what, what good is my opinion anyway outside of God's? So uh, God's word is not hate speech, but it's being used as, uh, it's being labeled as hate speech. Uh, those of you that are familiar with the Seventh Gay Adventist film, uh, the producer of that film, I saw her in, a, in an interview, and she said, I heard her say, that the words go and sin no more are used as hate speech. I'm wondering why she didn't say, neither do I condemn thee is used as hate speech. See, they like the neither do I condemn thee. See, that's the justification side of that quote. But go and sin no more, which is sanctification and cleansing and, and overcoming. That's used as hate speech. Who said that anyway? Where'd that come from? See, the words of Jesus himself are now being called hate speech. And there's a, one fellow who's a very, very strong activist for the gay agenda within our universities, and he's come out with 11 things that Christians need to stop saying 
in order to communicate with the LGBT community. Now, he calls himself a gay Christian. Well, actually, a bisexual Christian. But he says, these things you need to stop saying if you want to communicate with us. What he has just done is saying Christianity and we are not the same. Yet he calls himself a gay Christian. One of the things that he says we need to stop saying is go and sin no more. Only Jesus has the right to say that. Really. And we are to stop saying that homosexuality is sin. And we are to stop saying the Bible clearly says that offends them. So why are they Christians? Why are they calling themselves Christians? See, I think our institutions need to be safe places for the expressed will of God. Another thing, they should be safe places for the Holy Spirit. The Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed under the day of redemption. Notice, grieve not the Holy Spirit. So does that mean he can be grieved away? Well, I hope he's not grieved away from our schools. Uh, we, should we not endeavor to make our institutions safe places for the Holy Spirit to do his work? Amen. And why do I say safe place? In, uh, in Australia, Ellen White made this statement at Avondale College. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking these grounds. The Holy Spirit was walking the grounds of Avondale College, Ellen White said. And she said, we need to realize it. Well, if he's walking those grounds and he can be grieved away, I don't want that to happen while my kids are there, right? I want the Holy Spirit to do double time while my kids are in college. They need it. Don't we, we all need it, don't we? Yeah. The Holy Spirit has a personality. He must also be a divine person, uh, reading from uh, manuscript release. But anyway, the point is, I need to hurry on, so I'm not going to quote all of this. But I really think the Holy Spirit needs to be welcome on our campuses. Also, the angels of God. Uh, we read about from the Adventist home, above all things, parents should surround their children with an atmosphere of cheerfulness, courtesy, and love, a home where love dwells and where it finds expression in looks, in words, in acts, is a place where angels delight to dwell. Wouldn't it be nice if the angels delighted to dwell in all of our institutions? But if we're creating safe places for the evil angels through condoning and protecting open sin, do you think the angels are going to delight to be there, the angels of God? I worry about that. As a parent, I worry about that. I think they should be, the institution should be safe places for our standards as Seventh-day Adventists. Um, we read from the Review and Herald, I am instructed to say that in our educational work there is to be no compromise in order to meet the world's standards. Our people are now being tested as to whether they will obtain their wisdom from the greatest teacher the world ever knew or seek the god of Ekron, uh, the, the, of the pagan Canaanites. Let us determine that we will not be tied by so much as a thread to the educational policies of those who do not discern the voice of God. Yes, our standards as Seventh-day Adventists need to be safe to present and to uphold in our institutions. I mean, I sure want that for my children. And present truths, number six. They should be safe places for present truth. What is present truth? I, 
I like to sum it up in the words of Amos when he simply said, prepare to meet thy God. Isn't that really present truth? Uh, I mean, all the three angels' messages, all of that present truth, can it not be summed up in those five words, prepare to meet thy God? And when we send our young people to the university, we hope that they are preparing for service and preparing to meet our God. Um, that is present truth. I'm just summing it up real quickly because I want to allow some time for questions and answers here. What about new church members? When I say institutions, I'm not talking just about our schools. I'm talking about our churches. Uh, you know, uh, Should they not be safe places for new church members, the, those that um, Paul calls babes in Christ? I think... No, I hadn't told you this yet, but when I was studying my way out of the gay life in Southern California, I'd been reading The Great Controversy, and I was reading, well, you know, all those books I told you about my Left Behind series. <laughs> Some of you didn't hear about the Left Behind series. My parents left behind every time they visited something, and I collected them. I called it my Left Behind series. I consumed all of that, that Bible with all the study helps, the nine-volume testimonies uh, to the church, the five volumes of the Conflict of the Ages series, Story of Redemption, Steps to Christ. Those are the ones I remember. And consuming all of that, I was so excited about the truth that I was reading, and it gave me all the answers I needed for my homosexuality to turn and walk away, and I started looking for a church. And the, one of the first ones I went to the visiting pastor from a university way up north somewhere um, was preaching an amazing sermon until about halfway through when people start dozing or their minds start wandering, you know, kind of like now. <laughs> and, uh, and at that point, he, he said, of course, we all know we'll be sinning until Jesus comes. And I thought, wait a minute. Something's wrong with that statement. Because in Great Controversy, which I have been reading on page 489, there's this statement, this one sentence that says, Satan is constantly seeking to deceive the people of God with his fatal sophistry. At which point I had to go get a dictionary because I was not being very literate at that time. Sophistry is a masterpiece of deception. Satan is constantly seeking, uh, seeking to deceive whom? Us. The people of God with his fatal masterpiece of deception, what do you think it is? That it is impossible to overcome sin. And that's what I heard in that sermon. To this day, the only thing I remember from that sermon was that. We'll be sinning until Jesus comes. I was sin sick. I was gay. I wanted out. I was reading about victory. I didn't want to be doing my sins until Jesus comes. I didn't know what they had in mind, but I didn't want to be doing what I was doing. So at the end of church, I was invited to lunch, and we ended up at this big, beautiful restaurant overlooking downtown Los Angeles. That would never happen here. You don't have a restaurant overlooking Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> that would never happen in Carolina. But anyway, I'm sitting there all nervous because, I mean, I had no problem eating out on Saturdays. I was not an Adventist. I was not a Christian. But I did have a problem meeting out with Seventh-day Adventists on Sabbath <laughs> after church. And so I'm sitting there 
rather uncomfortable and this lady and these were well-meaning people I'm not criticizing the people they had my well-being in, in, at heart and she looked across the table and said Ron how's it going with those cigarettes is the Lord giving you victory I'm thinking what is this I said no he's not but in my mind it got real cocky is the Lord giving you victory over breaking the Sabbath and bringing me along <laughs> Didn't I just hear in church, we'll be sinning until Jesus comes? What's wrong with my cigarettes? There's a final test for God's people. has nothing to do with tobacco. Did you actually say that? No, that's what I'm thinking. Oh, <laughs> oh no, I was very polite. I said, no, ma'am, he isn't. And then my mind went crazy. I'm thinking, the inconsistency. See? I, am, I was a new person, a visitor, and that was the, the, the last point I wanted to bring out is visitors to our churches, they need to be safe places for visitors. I was coming sin sick, came to the back row of the church, desperately wanting out of my life of sin, and I'm being taught from the pulpit we'll be sinning until Jesus comes. What does that tell me? Don't worry about it's a message of hopelessness. And the reason, now some people might rejoice over that, but I wasn't. I was, I wanted out. And they're concerned about my cigarettes and my gay life and my drinking and all those things. But yet, it was okay for them to sin until Jesus comes. And I, I started figuring it out. I guess if I sin like an Adventist, <laughs> I can go to heaven. But I can't sin like a worldling. Well, if you're sinning, you know, practicing all of this as an Adventist, aren't you a worldling too? I mean, you know, if you're not trying to overcome sin, so it's like there are two kinds of sin. I figured that out. There are two kinds of sin, you know, yours and mine. <laughs> and you need to overcome your sins, but if you sin like me, we'll all be happy. Okay. Might I suggest in conclusion on this that from God's perspective, true safety is promised only to those who accept his authority Amen. as Lord and Master, leaning upon Christ and rendering obedience to his expressed will. He does not want us to wander into and along the broad way which leads to destruction. He, through reproof, and correction and instruction. He wants to lovingly guide us into and along the narrow way which leads to life. Notice Proverbs 29, 25. Whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. See, the Bible talks about safe places, but Satan has a counterfeit for everything God has created. Satan wants to create safe places for open sin because that's loving. That's accepting. God is love. So let's just love. Well, God is also just, right? There's more to God than just, I mean, love is not just uh, palliating or glossing over or going along with something. All of you parents know what tough love is, don't you? And if you don't, don't you remember when you were a kid? That tough, you know what tough love is as a kid. And God is a loving heavenly father and I stand by this principle that everything he, everything in this book 
somehow reveals the love of God. Amen. Some of it is very unpleasant because we need it. We need warning. We need reproof. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, but for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, uh-oh, may be... What does the King James say? Uh, there's another word before that. That the man of God may be... No. Perfect. <laughs> then, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And I didn't write it. That's what it says. And so a loving Heavenly Father wants the ultimate good for his children. And so we need to trust that we will find safety in his expressed will. Notice um, Psalm 119, 117. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. And in Leviticus 25, 18, wherefore ye shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and ye shall dwell in the land in safety. The word then is implied. And then ye shall dwell in the land in safety. So our only safety, friends, is in following this. And when it comes to safe places, and, and I hope you understand when we talk about the gay issue, we're not talking about the gay issue. <laughs> we're talking about sin. We're talking about all these issues, sin of any kind. You know, if, um, if there's a gay is, uh, issue going on on campus, and I've heard about this, where gay activity is going on in a boy's dormitory down in the sauna and all this stuff, and even a room being dedicated for gay behavior acting out, unbeknownst to the faculty, but that's going on. Um, With all of that going on, I just lost my train of thought on that. <laughs> I got caught up in that instance. Um, oh, the, um, the idea, when I confronted and was talking to this one dean about that, I said, they didn't know what to do about this activity going on in the dormitory. I said, if you caught a girl in the boys' dormitory, what would you do? Well, we'd have to take disciplinary action. I said, so, What's the problem here? I mean, if two boys are doing the same thing that a boy and a girl would be doing in the dormitory, isn't it the same sin? Doesn't it need the same attention? Doesn't it need the same compassion but without compromise? It needs the same, um, it needs the same discipline, we should say. Um, that being said, I know some of you have some questions, and I, I wanted to leave time for that in... Sorry I didn't get to the other nine sermons. <laughs> I have lots of material. Um, but, okay, and with your questions, let's try to keep them very brief so that there will be time for someone else to also ask a question. Yes, sir. Yes, I just want to ask you to go back to the very beginning of your discussion today. Uh-huh. Uh, when you mentioned federal funding is very important to our universities and yeah. schools. Because we had a big debate of this when I was yeah. years ago. You almost, you're giving up Oh, you're gonna get me on a whole, a whole nother. Is that is that a legitimate word? A whole nother, uh, a whole nother sermon here. But 
Yes, but let me just say this. When I have a chance to talk to administrators, I see here's, here's this other sermon. It's called The Devil's Test Run. Uh, let me just say it this way. I'll just summarize that sermon in two sentences. As Satan sees, as Satan successfully redefines marriage through legislation on a global basis, he knows he can successfully redefine Sabbaths through legislation on a global basis. Marriage and Sabbath, twin institutions from the Garden of Eden. I call that sermon the devil's test run. He's testing right now. But see, God is testing too. God is testing. Are my people ready for the final test? Let's give them, let's allow them to have a pretest. If they will stand faithful on that seventh commandment, though the heavens fall, then they'll stand faithful on the fourth commandment, right? Right now, we're being tested on the seventh commandment. And I'll guarantee you God has more money than all the governments combined. And I think he would be thrilled to see us say, no thank you. If it means compromise, no thank you. I think he would be thrilled to step in and prove that he has more money than the government. I, I really do, because what are we going to do when the Sunday law comes? We have to do the same thing. We have to be willing to let all of these things go. And I think if it's not time for all of that to go, I think the Lord can intervene. If we stand faithful, he can intervene, and we might be able to continue getting. A lot of this stuff is threats. Threats of legal, legal action and threats of loss. What's going on in this state right now is a threat of losing all of your education funding if you don't let anyone go into any bathroom at the risk of the 99.9% .9 of the rest of the population just to protect the, it's supposed to protect the interests of 0.3% of the population. What about the 99.7%? What about their rights and freedoms, you know? So there is the threat of losing the funding. Well, praise the Lord. North Carolina is saying, so what? We're not going to do it. Why can't the church do the same thing? Right? We are seeing people of the world taking stands that we should be taking. And when this lady in Kentucky took her stand about the gay marriage issue, and I don't know whether she's right on everything, but I'll tell you what, that lady from the Assembly of God Church was willing to go to jail for an indefinite period of time rather than compromise her principles, her biblical principles. And I said, why couldn't that have been a Seventh-day Adventist? But it was a church, I mean, Assembly of God person. And so God has his people in all denominations when he says, come out of her, my people. You know, and we should be in that same category that we are his people and we're willing to lose everything rather than, than compromise on the law of God. And this thing going on with the seventh commandment is just as much the law of God as the fourth commandment. Amen. Yes, sir. I submit that there's no No. Right. When, by the way, when I was asked to write my book, and my, some people have been asking, where are your books? And I said, right there. Well, who is that? Is Victor J. Adams? Oh, that's my pen name. Maybe you didn't know that. I was asked to use a pen name for my protection for that very reason, because another author had written, he was a pastor, and he wrote a book about the gay issue, 
and the gay militants tracked him down and burned his house to the ground. Well, this publisher, it was Huntington House in Lafayette, Louisiana. They said, please come up with a pen name for your protection. So that's where I came up with Victor J. Adamson for my protection. But then as I was submitting my testimony to Exodus International that has a, this big monthly paper back then, um, I submitted my testimony and I gave them my contact information and they called me back and they said, um, we really want to publish your testimony, but there's no name on it. And I said, that's okay, it's anonymous. I meant to do it that way. And they said, well, how is it a testimony if it's anonymous? <laughs> I thought, that's right. And he said, we would love to print it, but we need your name. If it's a testimony, it's got to have a name. Moreover, we want a pic your picture and a picture of your wife and children. So I submitted it again, Victor J. Adamson. <laughs> but I also put my real name, and I've used it ever since. But I kept the pen name, but, but I realized they pointed out Psalm 107, verse 2, that says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And so I have never forgotten that. It was a non-Adventist person, you know, with Exodus International, working on this very issue, very spiritual. They don't have the light that we have, but they showed me something I didn't have. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I've been saying so ever since. Yes, real quick. He had forgiven them. I have to repeat this for the recording. The Pope was saying he had forgiven Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. Well, I can answer that real quickly because I went to one of our churches and I heard a sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah and I was a gay person visiting that Sabbath. I thought, oh boy, <laughs> this is going to be a hot one today. <laughs> but I should have realized it wouldn't be any big deal because the minister of music was gay, the pianist was gay, the organist was gay, the special music was a gay couple. I knew all of them. They were all in SDA kinship and that's why I was visiting this church. Of course, that'd be California. That wouldn't be here in Carolina. Okay. The sermon was on Sodom and Gomorrah, and I thought, boy, that preacher's bold to be preaching on Sodom and Gomorrah with all these gay members of the church. But at the end of the sermon, his conclusion was that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for inhospitality. And I was so offended. I was not even a Christian, and I felt offended. My intelligence was insulted. Because I knew better than that. And so that's the position that many are taking now, that the Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed for, for homosexuality. But the Bible talks about what they were destroyed for, pride and idleness. Well, you look at where the gay communities thrive. It's in places of resort areas and idleness and then um, hostility. And another one is going after strange flesh. And let me just say something about that. In the gay world, when a person is tricking, which means looking for a new person every time, uh, they want a new experience every time, you know what they say? At least back when I was in that world, I'm looking for strange. See, it's right out of the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for going after strange flesh 
and gay people that are tricking are going after strange flesh. So, I mean, there, there's a link right there. There's another hand. Yes, yeah. Um, my kids are going to, they're in high school. And yeah. they go to a military academy. Mm-hmm. It's a charter school. How do I, and my daughter alone, who's a freshman, knows six people that are going through this transgender change and or, or, or bisexual or gay, um, just so she knows within her, in her circle. How can I introduce to the school what you're trying to teach, what, what, you, what you teach. And, and, and mind you, it's a military academy, so they do respect God, they do focus on that. It's different than the public school. But if there's anything that you can direct me to to then introduce to the school to bring this up as, because it's just fashionable is what it is. And, and, and that's, that's what it is. It's the in thing for these kids. Okay, so the question is about introducing our message and our kind of standards at this military school where the transgender issue is being coddled and accepted and so forth. How do we inter introduce these biblical standards? With a military school, it's not Adventist, it's not really Christian, uh, it'd be kind of difficult, except there are books out there, this Walt Heyer that Michael referred to, uh, we... You know, he was on the set with us at 3ABN, uh, did three amazing programs there. He was a transgender from male to female, and then as a Christian, he converted back to male. He went through every, uh, every procedure he could to become a man again. And he's just a wonderful Christian man, and he's written uh, several books and so forth. And so there are people that have testimonies about the dangers of the transgender issue, and you could share those books, and uh, uh, the highest rate of suicide is in the transgender community, 40-some percent, and a very high rate, at least 30 percent, I believe it is, wish they'd never done it. Uh, some of you may remember Renee Richards, the tennis player years ago that went through that, and he highly regrets ever having done that. Many of these people really regret it, and there are lots of testimonies about that. So you could just share. Well, here's the thing: we over Revelation 12:11 says we overcome the blood of the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. If you can get testimonials, and there are plenty of them, and, and uh, uh, you can find that through our websites and so forth, and just share these testimonies. So you're not sharing sermons; you're sharing experiences. I would say that would be a good way to start. Tradingmysorrows.com. Tradingmysorrows.com. Yes, there you go. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. I asked my son about, about being about two years ago when he did that. Uh-huh. Three months later, he's transgender. Now, he's still deciding, but he has to do the counseling first and then the estrogen and everything else. So we're in the counseling phase. I want to know how I can help him. First of all, don't condemn him. And I'm sure you don't. Just love him unconditionally. Pray without ceasing. See if you can share some of our material with him. Because uh, I remember, for example, Doug Batchelor talking about how uh, he was suicidal. You know, before he was a Christian, and there were times where he was suicidal. Have any of you heard that? And his mother would always say, well, if you want to commit suicide, just wait till tomorrow. You know, because once you do it, it's final. I mean, just... 
put it off a day and just give it some more thought. Um, you can always do it, but just get, uh, wait another day or so. And, and he, I think something to that effect, and so he, of course, never committed suicide. With the transgender and all this surgery and stuff, there's so much that he should uh, be introduced to as a part of his conditioning. He can be shown these, like we're saying, these testimonies and so forth, and so he can listen to and read the stories of people that have gone ahead of him and listen to what they say after they've done it. Most of them, a huge percentage of them really regret it. So I would say get testimonies into his hands. Yes? Well, effeminate behavior is not what is condemned in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, when it says, it uses the word effeminate. Uh, that word, really, the, the Greek word that it comes from uh, actually refers to catamite, which means the man playing the female role in sexual activity. Um, there are people that have effeminate mannerisms that have no gay tendencies whatsoever. Uh, and uh, I've known people like this that have gone through school, they've married, and uh, you know I have a pastor friend who's that way, a very family man. He's, he's um, married with children and grandchildren and just an ultimate family man, but he's a bit effeminate. And these, I don't know what, is, what causes all of that, but you know Wayne Blakely tells a story about how when he was growing up, they tried to make him more butch because he was very effeminate. And someone, I forget who it was, told him to put a football between his legs and try to walk like a man. So he was going around with a football between his legs trying to walk. Well, who can do that? Anyway, he gave up on the football. Uh, but a lot of people mistake mannerisms for homosexuality. And a lot of times, young people that have these mannerisms are pushed towards homosexuality by name-calling and ridicule and being ostracized, and, and the gay community is very accepting. Uh, there is effeminate mannerisms within the gay community. The, the majority of gay people, I believe, you would never pick out of a crowd because they're not that way at all, but they find the effeminate ones to be very entertaining, and they accept it. And so like in nightclubs and so forth, um, I've seen people that are effeminate really put it on when they're in the gay crowd because it's entertaining and they're not nearly so effeminate when they leave. It's, it's just, you know, they find it a way of being accepted. I, I wouldn't know what to say about that. I mean, I'm tending to say don't worry about it if they're straight uh, because this is, I don't, I don't have an explanation for why that is. Some men are very butch and some are more gentlemen. But you see this, the opposite of that in women. Some women are very effeminate and some are very tomboyish. Um, and I don't, the reason I would not be so concerned about that is because I don't see it as a sin issue. And, and it's something that I don't really. Oh, he's desiring it? Well, if he's desiring it, then there's a lot of, you know, if he's open to suggestions, then, you know, you could just pick out maybe like one thing for a while and have him work on that one thing. 
don't tell them about the football, though. That doesn't work. But, you know, one thing at a time. And so that he's aware of one thing that, that comes across very strange and just work on that one thing. Um, but there again, it's not a sin issue, but it's, it's something that he could work on. But I would just suggest pick out maybe one type of mannerism and concentrate on that and see if he can just not, for example, like the limp wrist thing. Uh, a lot of times they think about the limp wrist. Uh, and if he's wanting help, just point that out. Um, you know, try not, try not to let your wrist fall. You know, see if you can focus on keeping your hand up. You know, I, I don't know. It's, but this is not a salvation thing. It's just a behavioral thing. Yeah. Yes, in the back. All of that is in my second book. That, that whole, in fact, more than that. Uh, the book, Straight Answers to the Gay Question, having been there, it's all in that book. But I think also you can find it on my website, victorjadamson.com. Oh, the question is, do we have a list of the myths versus facts? You're talking about the presentation I did. The title for today says Myths versus Facts. I never saw the titles. I'm just winging it. <laughs> yeah, and you're also from Alaska. So <laughs> well, and here's why. Because initially, I was supposed to do Monday through Friday. And then towards the and I submitted all of my titles. And then they asked if Mike could come and give his testimony on Monday. And that threw everything off for me. I, I, had to, I had to scramble to make it. That's why you got two in one on Tuesday, right? Because I was trying to get it back in order. But so you were not here when I did. I did miss, in facts on Tuesday. It's in the book. It's also on the website. Oh, I'm, I owe you all an apology. I didn't know that you had a schedule for me. I thought it was I could just do whatever I wanted. No, because I didn't see that. Oh, it's there. Oh, I hope you're not disappointed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was, uh, I took a question there, then one here. Yes. You write phone, uh, yeah, you write phone calls and make letters. <laughs> you know, make some phone calls and write some letters. <laughs> because, you know, if, if parents will speak up, it would really help. Yeah, yeah, and yes. Is this your first presentation? No. <laughs> The question is, what attracts one man to another man? And it's a very good question because, especially if you're a wife of a man who's attracted to another man, and the, the wife, you know, if he was attracted to another woman, I mean, you might could compete with that, but how do you compete as a woman with a man? Uh, in short, because we've been talking about this all week, in short, it's the mystery of iniquity. There, you can't really explain all of these things. Uh, there are many factors that lead to that. 
Uh, one uh, a strong factor is a perception of rejection. A child growing up feeling rejected by his father or rejected by his male peers or whatever. There's that void in his life. And um, uh, Mike points out that uh, in his presentations that the gender that is the mystery that you're absent from, that you don't bond with, is the gender that becomes the attraction when you get into puberty. And so if you are raised around girls and women and fellowship with them, associate with them, you don't have good male influences in your life, uh, chances are you will be attracted in that direction. And it's really about seeking affirmation and acceptance. Um, and I say, you know, when children are born, they have, uh, I, I call them love cups from the mother and the father. And they need those love cups filled. And if they're not, then it's easy for them to get filled by the wrong kind of love and affection. Uh, I was starved for acceptance from my father and from that gender uh, as I was growing up. And when I started getting attention from men, I was, I was a pushover because I did not have that. I didn't feel that I had it growing up. We have a lot of material on that that we've been presenting and in our books and so forth, but it's a very complicated question, and it cannot be totally answered because there again, I say that uh, I refer back to the mystery of iniquity. The thing of it is, we, when we study the word, we realize that we're out of sync with God's will, and we let him and ask him, invite him to work with us to bring us back into his will. Yes? Oh, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. How many of you have that same question about gay weddings for friends and family? That comes up a lot, and I'm glad you brought it up because I really do feel the need to address that. In some of our official documents that are coming down, and first of all, I want to say I'm very happy to see the seminary attempting to address this issue, the gay issue, the division and so forth, but I can see where there can be some tweaking. Those of us who have been there could really offer some tips if they would listen to us on how to make these statements because um, I think they're missing the point on some of these. For example, one of the statements says that we, we should leave it up to the individual's own discernment about attending and participating in gay weddings that that we should not judge one another and, and just leave it up to the individual. And I agree we should not judge. However, I believe we should educate. And here's the thing. If marriage and Sabbath are twin institutions, they are sacred institutions. And we should do nothing to condone the perversion of either one. And so, for example, a, a family in Arkansas came to me and uh, their son, one of their twin boys, was getting married out in California to another guy. And um, they didn't know what to do because quite often the gay child will make all kinds of accusations against the parent about not loving them, not caring, and all of this kind of thing. And so they were very concerned. They wanted to make sure that their son knew they loved him, but they felt really badly about being invited to his gay wedding, and they didn't know what to do. And... Uh, in one case, I had a 
the, the father refused to go, but the mother broke down and did go. And then the mother called us from Canada, and she just was filled with remorse that she had compromised and had gone to the wedding. But the couple in, in uh, Arkansas, here's what they did. They flew out to California a week before the wedding, and they spent a whole week with their son and his partner in a secular setting, away outside of the sacred institution. They took him to dinner, and they, they just did all kinds of wonderful things with him. They did not go to the wedding. They did not go to the reception, but they were there for another week afterwards, and they spent more time with the gay son and now his spouse. And they came back with perfect peace because he said he could not accuse us of not loving him, and he could not accuse us of being too cheap to go out to California. <laughs> we spent much more time than they asked for. We just didn't go to the wedding. And here's the thing. In the plain of Dura, when the three Hebrews were standing there before that golden image, they could have bowed to that image and prayed to their own God. But what would have been their witness? No one would have known. If you go to a gay wedding, no matter how you feel about it, people will think you're adding your blessing. Your presence is adding a blessing to that union whether you really like it or not. Your very presence will give the message that you are adding your blessing. And I urge people, do not go to a perversion of a sacred institution. Do not. I mean, you can show them your love and your compassion in so many different ways without going to the gay wedding. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think... I really think as a church, we should be very strong on that because it's a biblical principle. We can give all of the biblical reasons why. But there again, I won't judge someone who goes because it's not my place. But if they ask my advice beforehand, I'll be delighted to give it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's another seminar going on here real quick. You need to ring the bell when I need, I need to quit, right? <gasps> no, no. Well, no, 3.15 was when I was supposed to finish. That's 10 minutes. That was 10 minutes ago. Okay. Listen, we'll have time tomorrow. Uh, do one more session tomorrow. And um, I, I don't know what your schedule says, but I have nine to choose from. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think today was what I submitted was today would be the conundrum of the balanced view, and tomorrow would be the devil's test run. So... Uh, whatever they printed is not what I submitted. <laughs>